Hey everyone, this is Steph from Heinemann, and today on the podcast, we're excited to be joined again by Carla Espana and Lucia Dira Herrera, co-authors of En Comunidad, Lessons for Centering the Voices and Experiences of Bilingual Latinx Students. En Comunidad was published last spring during the first months of the pandemic. Today, Carla and Luz reflect on the past year since their book's publication and offer their current thinking on bilingual education and translanguaging, as well as some book recommendations and exciting news about the new En Comunidad Collective. I'm here with Luz and really excited that we're taking the time to reflect on a lot of the conversations that we've had with teacher educators, teachers, friends and colleagues in the field. And it's been quite a journey the last year, right, Luz? I mean, um, it's just been a lot a lot to take in of teaching and learning during a pandemic, uh, taking in the, um, the struggle for racial justice, the continuous, this just ongoing efforts and push for making sure that all learning spaces do right by children and I'm just really thankful that we've had the opportunity to write together and that we've had this book in Comunidad to um, anchor our conversations. So that's what we really wanna share uh, with you in this moment. And um, the one year anniversary of the publication of our book in Comunidad is coming up at the recording, at the time of this recording. And so it's like Carla said, it's been just amazing to be able to connect with so many people in a time where we've also been the most isolated that we've ever been. But we're just so in, so excited and have been so humbled by the support um, and the response. And so we would love to share, we want to share some takeaways from our conversations with teachers and educators across the country and the ways that we've been able to support their work with the Encomunidad framework. So I want to start with talking about some of the assignments or, or some of the, I want to start talking about um, some of the, some of the ways that we've been able to be in community with educators. And uh, one of the things that we've done is we've been able to help them navigate how to use this book, right, in, in a way that is going to be meaningful for their teaching practice. And this is K-12 educators as well as teacher educators in, in teacher preparation programs. And so one of the things that we've been able to do is, you know, the things that we that we talk about in chapters one and two, one of the things that we've been able to do is have a dialogue on what language ideologies are, what they look like, and the ways that we can examine those. We have been able to do this with, again, with teachers, teacher educators, and other educational leaders or education leaders across various contexts. And um, one of the other things that we've been able to do is provide this framework, right, for teaching bilingual Latinx students and provide a sample classroom sequence of lessons. We've been able to provide support as, as to how to use uh, various children's literature uh, and other multimodal texts. And uh, we have, you know, a sample sequence of lessons that comes to mind that we shared with some school leaders. And uh, Carla, you're going to talk a little bit about what else we, we were able to, to share. And for me, what was really beautiful was that most of it was really organic. Um, we had uh, Dr. Kathy de los Rios, who's at uh, Berkeley, uh, reach out to us because she was using the text as their class text with um, educators in her teacher ed program. 
And it was just supposed to be this informal conversation, you know, where she was asking us, hey, recommendations of how can I use this book in my teacher ed program? How do I, you know, split up the chapters for different sessions? What do I focus on? And um, we said, you know, we've gotten this question from other other people and we know the the guide is helpful with question, with the reader's guide. It, it's super helpful that, you know, people have been downloading from the Heinemann website, but we'd love to be in conversation with everyone who's in your same situation. So we opened that up and it was a beautiful session of just getting to know what people are planning, especially in these in these times of how to support educators. And so we even gave examples in that really great conversation with um, teacher educators of thinking about how do you take expectations from a teacher education program and consider the realities of classroom life. Because for the most part, there's this Sometimes they just don't come together. It's like they're not having these conversations. And they, it was really beautiful to, to share some of those lessons from um, the different chapters, whether it was with uh, reading and community and, and showing them the different mentor texts we used or thinking about social justice and integrating poetry so we can process and heal and really get students' language practices out there on the page in the learning space when they share and they're validated. So it was, for me, it was a really beautiful way to to bring together these different voices because we had teachers in that talk too that we talked to them, but we also had teacher educators. So that was fun to just plan and, and think think that out loud with them. And one of, the, one of the other things that I wanted to point out and just sort of just acknowledge because it's been such a powerful aspect of this experience for us is the way that people have reached out to us across, you know, you've Maybe they're participating in sessions or maybe through social media, like on Instagram or Twitter, they've been able to share with us the ways that some of the, the ways that our stories resonated with them, the ways that they identify with some of our experiences. And to realize that these also have a space in the classroom and to realize that we can also share our, you know, some of ourselves as teachers, right? We're often asked or we're often asking our students to share their stories, but uh, how are we sharing our own stories? And that was one of the most amazing things for, for us and for me as well, to really be able to have had that kind of impact on, on some of the, of the people that, or some of the educators that have read in Comunidad. And it's just so humbling to know that people are making these connections and are able to identify with our experiences. Yeah, and it reminded me a lot of those comments about, especially from teachers who grew up speaking Spanish, speaking different regional varieties of Spanish from different countries that they're from, and then getting into their teacher preparation journey, whether it was a grad program or certification exams, uh, what else, portfolios, like everything that comes under there, like you prepare to teach and feeling like they're not good enough, right? And feeling like, their identities, their journeys, their language practices aren't good enough for the classroom or aren't good enough for their peers who might be in similar roles as them, but because they are white, they started out as white monolingual teachers who then did like a study abroad in Spain, learned Spanish, and then they come and they get these similar teaching positions as other folks who were actually grew up in a community where Spanish was the language um, that they were developing, it was, 
healing. It was a necessary reminder for everyone involved in these conversations, I think, to think about why is it that I was made to feel ashamed of my language practices and really thinking through that. And then hearing those comments, Luz, that I know for us, it's just been so affirming of our work where they've said, Yes, I opened a teacher PD book and it it's like in my head, it like sounded like, you know, how I speak with my family. Yes, this is exactly how my, my students communicate and this is how they learn. And I think that that for me was like not only affirming, but also, yes, we got to keep working on project number two. You know, <laughs> like we need more of this. Um, right. So, so it just re- really revealed the importance, right? The 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 need, the great need there is to support bilingual teachers or teachers who are teaching emerging bilingual children, right? To have that sort of uh, home language support. And so we hope that the next project that we work on really considers this great need. And so we are working on or starting to work on a curriculum that is written mostly in Spanish from a bilingual perspective that really considers our, uh, our dynamic use of language and uh, seeing ways that we can support teachers in being able to create their own, right? Using text that they choose, but considering the approach that that we are building on from En Comunidad. We had conversations with a lot of teachers who are Spanish as a heritage language mm-hmm. teacher. That's a like official title, like high school, middle grade, where they teach in Spanish. And there are different philosophies of how they teach that. But what was really surprising for us because this is not something that we had like planned for we hadn't had this discussion with anyone at Heinemann or even with each other was that this was a whole other group of teachers that were connecting with the book Mm -hmm. because of the framework that we we started the book with with anchoring in let's come to terms with what do we believe about language and what do we believe about bilingual children let's name it what are our assumptions what are our bias, what's our bias on this? Why? And because we start that way, that's the conversation that's needed in those Spanish as a heritage language spaces. And so having those um, conversations in book talks and on social media and people reaching out to us about how they've been using the lessons from this book with their high school Spanish as a heritage language classes. I'm like, yes, thank you so much. Like, yes, I'm like the next project, we're going to have more work in Spanish for you. We are so excited. But that also was just a great reminder and, and it was one of our big takeaways from the conversations with teachers is that there's so much of the curriculum and so much of the PD out there is so very monolingual English. And, and teachers are expected to go like just translate this for your multilingual settings or go translate this for your Spanish, English, dual language settings. And it was just, I'm just thankful that we had this opportunity to, in, in Comunidad, to bring in text that would show more of a dynamic use of language. You know, it's more authentic, it's dynamic, and we have these examples with books, we have examples with the lessons. Um, so that was real, real a, a nice surprise for me in working with that group of teachers this year, too. Yes, and one of the, I think one of the major draws, right, um, and I think the what we get sort of the most requests for is to really help teachers um, and educators, all kinds of educators, to understand uh, the three T's approach that we introduce in Comunidad as part of developing your critical bilingual literacies. And so we call this the three T's, text, topics, and translanguaging in our, in our book. And of course, 
texts or topics, I'll start with topics. Topics are those culturally and linguistically sustaining topics that are important and relevant to the community in which you teach to the children in your classrooms. Texts, what are the texts that are affirming of those identities of the children that you teach that affirm their linguistic practices, right? And their cultural ways of being. And finally, translanguaging, how do we sustain those dynamic um, language practices of our children and youth? And so we've been able to create a variety of uh, sample topics and text sets, and as well as very specific ways that we can support translanguaging in the classroom across different um, grade spans so that, so that educators can really see what this looks like and maybe create their own, right, to start this, uh, this way of approaching their teaching and learning. And it was so, for, for me, Luz, I don't know about for you, because um, I keep thinking, like, what was my favorite part? And I can't pick. <laughs> it's just been such an, a, a lovely way of collaborating mm-hmm. together and also of, of being in conversation with these different uh, educators from all over. But for me, one one really, one highlight of, of this specific planning and sharing this process with them with the three T's has been amplifying authors that people might not know about, platforms that people might not know about. So I remember when we were talking about planning across the topic of language, I, language and identity, I think was one of them that we did, right? And we did that across middle grade novels mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. middle grade, right? And I remember um, talking through Lands of the Cranes as a text that's a novel in verse and going through examples of how Aida Salazar uses language and how language shows a connection to family and place. And that's really important in that novel. And then we talked about Efren Divided by Ernesto Cisneros and that beautiful way that uh, Ernesto Cisneros crafts the dialogue of this family that's experiencing family separation because of immigration injustice, right? So for me, it's just been. In multiple on multiple levels that we are able to talk about a framework for planning. We are intentional about centering uh, bilingual and multilingual Latinx children's experiences. We are intentional about our text selection. And we also want to make sure that these authors and these books get into the hands of teachers and school libraries and librarians. So um, it's been for me fun to like go back to those texts and reread them multiple times for the different audiences that we engage with, right? Yeah, or even doing this through poetry, right? I mean, Luz has also had a great experience of like, you know what, we're going to try some of some different kinds of poetry out with this topic text translanguaging approach, because the way that we were taught poetry maybe wasn't the most, you know, healing and liberating way. So I was just thinking about our, our initial approach to poetry compared to how we've grown in our um, approach to using poems in in our curriculum and in our planning. Yeah, and I think I, I think poetry is one of those areas of uh, study and teaching that is often pretty. It's a bit daunting to a lot of educators. Um, I don't know. It's just a complex art form, really, uh, but it's also very free, right? I mean, there's not really a formula for poetry. And I think that's one of the things that I really love about it. And again, in our conversation with with teachers, we've been able to share some of our, the novels and verse and show how, you know, how we can use these as mentor texts for children to start their own, you know, identity poems or X poems or any kind of poetry that they'd like wish to create based off these mentor texts. And we've been learning so much along the way. 
Um, and I think we, of course, as Carla mentioned, we've been growing so much um, as educators ourselves when we've been in community with other educators um, as they as they teach us as well, right? And as we are just continuing uh, to learn. And I think during this pandemic, we've been having this question about, well, how do we get access to these texts, right? And it's been incredible to see the ways that different publishers and authors have come together and so generously have shared their work in many different ways. Some of the authors have done read-alouds and posted these on YouTube, for instance, the same with publishing houses, right? And there's been so many platforms that have also been able to, to support the, these authors and um, making these available for educators and for children. But it's something that we are constantly thinking about. How do we get, how do we make sure, how do we, yeah, how do we make sure that, that teachers and children have access to these rich texts that they can then use for teaching and learning? And with that, another practice that I think the virtual format was um, helpful for us because we were able to connect with teachers in different places at this time. For me, Luz has been really thinking, of, I don't know if it's for you, Luz, but for me, it's been the the opportunity that we get to practice the narrative around purposeful text selection mm, mm-hmm. and how we use it. So for example, um, some teachers will say, hey, like I'll get an email from my principal and say, give me a book list. I got to order these books by tomorrow. Mm-hmm. <laughs> or you know, I have room in my budget and I got to get this out next week. So give me a book list. Or a colleague will say, oh, I don't really agree with changing our text for this unit, why do you why do you want to change it, right? And so, it's been very helpful in our sessions with teachers and teacher educators to practice mm-hmm. that kind of. We kind of do this role play of like, so what might it sound like? And it's not just about let me curate a list. It's about the the framework around it, the intention. What is my reason? What is my rationale behind? my inclusion of texts that show dynamic language practices, mm-hmm. whether it is, I want us to bring, we are grateful, right? Tracy Sorrell's book, that's Cherokee English. I want us to bring examples of dynamic language practices that show Arabic in English, that will show Spanish in English. So what does that sound like when I'm talking to an administrator about this, my rationale? What does it sound like when I'm talking to a colleague who might be in a monolingual setting teaching, I'm teaching in a bilingual setting, and they say, well, that's just for your kids. Mm-hmm. Why, what do I need to say? I think those of us who are in higher ed or teacher education programs, we have this immense privilege and opportunity that we get to practice this for across a semester with, a, with students in a class, right? Mm-hmm. And with the book, it's like we're taking teachers with Comunidad through chapters one through seven on like, how do you take a stance as an advocate for bilingual students? And I'm just thankful that in the past year, we've, we've had that opportunity in different um, formats virtually to engage with educators to really problem solve together, right? Because that's, that's what it's about. Absolutely. And I think this, you know, in addition to us living through a pandemic in the last, for the last year, we've also, right, dealt with a different kind of pandemic of racial injustice. And I think that has brought to light, I mean, I don't know. I think many of us have been aware for a long time, but I feel like more broadly, um, how necessary it is to have these very intentional conversations about race, racism, justice, what does it look like, right? And so 
things as seemingly simple, perhaps, I don't know, as text selection can tell you a lot about a person's positionality, lens, what they bring with them, right? Uh, going back to what we said earlier, these, these uh, teaching or uh, language ideologies, these are all expressed through the text that we select, but also the text that we don't select or avoid for whatever reasons. Um, I know that I've had, you know, some educators say, well, I'm not really comfortable with that. Or I think, you know, my kids are too, or my students are too young. And so we've had to have those conversations. Like, what does it mean? <sighs> At what point, you know, are we okay with being uncomfortable or what, what will it take or what can it, you know, like, what do we do about that? And we've been able to, to have this discussion and, um, and think about, well, you know, why not be uncomfortable? It's okay to have discomfort and Perhaps this is one way that you can, you know, that we can grow and let's try it out. You know, I think children are just so, I, I'm constantly amazed at the ways that children make sense of things and the ways that they notice things and they are noticing things and they are very much aware. And so I think in the classroom, we do have that responsibility to create those connections, right? And consider how outside forces are impacting the children that we teach and not necessarily, and we can't ignore that, right? We have to be able to acknowledge that and, and address that in, the, in our teaching. And I think the uh, virtual format, um, so I, I'm a fieldwork advisor, that's part of my instructor fieldwork advisor title, but um, I advise and I visit my teacher ed ed education grad students at their sites and they've been virtual, right? For the past um, many semesters, it feels like forever. And uh, something that came up as as my students were planning uh, read-alouds was that they were saying, "I have family members that'll sit around mm -hmm. my student, and I see them, and they're like listening in." And it's it's brought in this this level of like even more intention, being more intentional about the word choice. And so, and this came up with like a read aloud on a Maya Angelou board book that one of my students selected. And she's like, well, I was worried because we're doing like Black History Month. And, um, and I was like, well, tell me about your concern. Like what, where's your concern coming from? And it was really interesting to hear about what has been centered in the school curriculum prior to that. Mm -hmm. And why would it be concerning and not celebratory that you have these images of Maya Angelou, and then you're connecting past and present struggles with Black Lives Matter and children learning about uh, movements and people using poetry to talk about um, injustice and processing and healing. So that for me has been a, a different kind of conversation with teachers that I hadn't had before because of the virtual teaching. But it's like, what are the words that we're using to make sure that when we do meet with families and we have these conversations, whether you're in a predominantly white space or you're in a predominantly um, space with a black and brown children and families, in this case, it's a New York City setting. Why would you feel this sense of like tension or concern? Like what is the narrative that the school up to this point has had? Because then that has a lot to say about what's the purpose that for a school to have these like monthly holiday celebrations if it's not something that's... Mm -hmm woven through the entire curriculum across the year, right? Because that's really different. Because then you're like, yeah, we we highlight, you know, Black authors and Black history throughout. And we, you know, so that's a little different. 
And those conversations, we need we need to have them. We need to talk about what where does a school stance, um, what's the school's stance on their teaching of history, their teaching of marginalized voices, and is it is it relegated to a, a month for different groups, or is it something that's throughout? And um, why or why not? You know, I would I wanted to share. It's so interesting that you you know talk about the ways that um, families have been increasingly engaging right in the learning with their children through through this virtual remote learning and actually it's so interesting because i've been noticing that in my own teacher education courses so i've been um, i'm teaching future bilingual teachers i run a bilingual teacher residency program and i'm currently i have a class with 25 future bilingual uh, teachers and we start out every session with a read aloud and so i've you know i noticed that my students many of them are parents they have some of their kids come join like during story time. And that's like, whoa, like I didn't expect that. That's really cool. You know, and now yesterday I had a class again and um, I saw more kids on my students' laps. Like, oh, wow, you know, I love this. I think, you know, we're definitely going to stick to story time to, be, to begin our <laughs> sessions, but it's been so beautiful. I love that, but it's also a really nice way to model for them, right? Um, how how they can also do this, whether it's remote learning or in-person instruction, hopefully, when we're able to be safely back together, to be able to model these kinds of conversations that will, you know, obviously emerge from this reading in comunidad. And it's just been so nice to see and to see their children and just how they've been able to also be a part of their own learning, right? As, as grownups, it's really, really fun. I also think that's, Beautiful in my. I had that last fall. I taught a, a course at Bergen College, that's uh, a city university of New York um, institution, virtually, of course, but it was a class for children's literature in Spanish. Mm-hmm. And I did all my, so all, everything like read alouds, everything was Spanish. Um, and it was beautiful to see the children part of it with my grads, my undergrad, that was an undergrad class. Um, but also for the undergraduates, it was like, Besides there are those who are Spanish majors and that had like Spanish language courses and, and some weren't, it was like one of their first times where the use of the Spanish language was in a setting of like place of learning and authority where mm-hmm. it was being like it's it's on the tasks or assignments. It's like well, my Flipgrid videos were in Spanish. My <laughs> online platform was in Spanish. And so it threw a lot of people off because they weren't used to that. And it was practice, right? It was great, uh-huh. great way to practice. And I think it was beautiful for them to try it, but also for, for the children and the families to, to, to do that together. So yay to more of those experiences, Luz. I'm all for that. So we want to share um, a few of the books, right, that we've been loving. Uh, we want to highlight some from 2020. Uh, 2020 was a really, you know, really rough year for all of us. Um, and for some more than others, of course. So one of the one of the books I'm reading right now, actually, with my with my seven year old son is a new book. It's a a Black Panther Party, a graphic novel history by David F. Walker and Marcus Kwame Anderson. I'm reading it with my seven year old. I've actually already we've already started to integrate it in some workshops. It just came out in late January and, um, you know, definitely has been spending a lot of time kind of explaining each each part of it because, you know, it's definitely a lot. Um, a lot of history, a lot of uh, contextualizing things for him um, in a way that he can understand. But it's been really fun that he's actually really into it, you know, because it's a comic book format, a graphic novel format. And so it's it's kind of really engaging and interesting to him. So I'm excited to see um, 
teachers use this in their classroom across the different grade levels. And I think this can be used honestly from K to 12, my son is in first grade. Just before, I, for, I don't wanna forget this, but you also added that when you were discussing in our book talks and webinars we've had you know, in the last few months, we were talking about the work of chapters four and five in the book on creating counter narratives yes. and helping students learn history, learn about social movements and activists, and then also get their voice out on the page or the multimodal page, whatever that might look like. But I know that we had some readings on the Young Lord, some reading on the Black Panther Party, and then you added that one because I remember we were really excited about that one to the soon to be released, and then it was. So I think for those for those of you listening who have joined us and you've seen those graphics and we've shared um, some of that planning from chapter four and five, specifically about social movements, this is this is your must get text to add to that text set. Definitely. Again, the graphic novel format is beautiful and it just really it helps us understand the rise of the Black Panther Party. It has like it really contextualizes like historical perspectives. Right. Um, and the need for the rise for this kind of movement centered on liberation and self-determination. And um, I think it would be a great pairing with a new film that came out and it's available on HBO, Judas and the Black Messiah, which is an excellent film. And so that would be a really great way to, to pair it as well. Another book that I'm really excited about is an anthology by uh, Sarisha Fennell, and it is called Wild Tongues Can't Be Tamed, 15 Voices from the Latinx Diaspora. And Fennell is the founder of the Bronx Book Festival, and it's going to include uh, essays and poems by some of our favorite authors that we've been highlighting all year. And we highlight in our book, of course, like Elizabeth Acevedo, Meg Medina, E.B. Soboy, and others, Liam Rivera, right? And of course, you know, one of our favorite classic pieces of literature is How to Tame a Wild Tongue, which is a chapter in Gloria Saldua's memoir, Borderlands, La Frontera, The New Mestiza. And uh, I'm just so excited to see how this anthology is going to pay tribute to Saldua and how these authors are going to be in conversation together. So I'm really excited to integrate that into our workshops. And I'm going to finish off by sharing a book. I see that Carla has it in, in the right behind her, right? Milo Imagines the World by Matt de la Peña and uh, Christian Robinson, um, their newest picture book. And, you know, it's just a beautiful, a beautiful story about a boy um, who was just kind of seeing the world um, and noticing his surroundings, but also just makes us realize how much more there is to us, to everybody around us than we could ever know, right? Um, and how much each of us can be dealing with that um, we would never be able to see from the surface. And so it's just a really beautiful story. And so I'm so excited to integrate all of these into our future planning and future projects as well. What about you, Carla? You know me in tech sets. I'm all about like picking a topic and seeing what I can find under that topic so I can just learn more. So um, one of the topics I was thinking a lot about was because of the terrible injustice around um, support for refugees, asylum seekers, um, our immigration system is just terrible in this country. Um, it's so anti-Black, it's so anti-refugee support. It's sometimes I'm like, oh, there's a brief moment where I'm like, oh, there's a little bit of hope and then you're just let down. And so, a lot of my conversations with teachers have been has have been around how do you navigate this topic. So we go over um, chapter five, which in the book we talk about this lesson sequence on helping immer kind of immersing students into different in different immigration narratives and giving them that option. Like if you don't want to share your own immigration or migration narrative, or you want to research others, like here are some options, and then really 
helping them through that process of um, developing their voice and getting their voice out there on, on ways to inform people about what's going on. I took that and thought, how can I develop what we have in chapter five with texts that are just recently released like last in the last few months last year. So for middle grade, I decided to focus my work on Land of the Cranes by Aida Salazar, which I mentioned earlier, because it takes place at a deportation center with a, a mother and their child. And um, the child uses poetry, picture poems specifically, that the teacher, their teacher had taught them as a way to help the children get their stories out and for them also to process what's happening. And I had the privilege of working on the teacher's guide for Land of the Cranes. And so I really have taken a lot of time with that book and, and, and having conversations with ed- educators on how novels in verse can be a way for children to feel more of that freedom as they read, but also as a mentor text for their own writing. And If and Divided, which I mentioned earlier as well, I kind of have it color-coded and stickies everywhere in that book as I consider the ways that the author, Neso Cisneros, uses language, but also their use of how, how they show the impact of family separation on children. And so the main character, Efren, is the oldest with two younger siblings. And when they're um, they're separated from their mom, their dad's like working, trying to just vibe with the family and how it impacts Efren at school. And also to look at it through a perspective as an educator, Ernesto Cisneros developed a really strong character um, that's super developed with the teacher to think of like a teacher who's like, might not notice what's happening with a child. And yeah. then... Um, Throughout the story, you kind of see that character be more complex and get to know the teacher a little bit better. So um, Ernesto Cisneros is a middle grade teacher, and you hear that expertise when you read this book. You get that. Mm-hmm. And I'm a middle grade teacher at heart. That was my beginning of my teacher journey as a middle grade. So I'm thankful for those two books um, in 2020 that really helped me get a, more of an understanding of how I can talk about this topic with, with students. And then for young adult literature, definitely We Are Not From Here by Jenny Torres Sanchez, which was a different kind of book because it shows the journey of three teens um, from Guatemala and their journey on La Bestia, the train that's really super dangerous and their whole migration journey to get to the U.S. Um, and The Grief Keeper, which was thanks to you, Luz, because <laughs> I'm all for like contemporary realistic fiction, memoir poetry. And then Luz is like, you've got to check out The Grief Keeper. So um, that takes these siblings who are seeking the support and try to be here documented, but it's really difficult with the immigration system. And so one of them gets this opportunity. They're like, you can stay in this country if you take in everyone's grief and trauma. So there's these like experimental trials and we want to try this on you and you're going to take that in. And if that works, we can figure out your paperwork and you can stay in this country. I'm telling you that author, Alex, uh, Alexander Villasante, that, um, so for me, I've been thinking a lot about how do I navigate conversations on immigration justice and what are the texts that I can use with different grade levels. And then one of my favorite books last year, and I, I've been talking to everybody about this book, is a memoir called Children of the Land by Marcelo Hernandez Castillo. And I just found out, he, he shared this at a, a webinar like two weeks ago, I don't know, a week or two weeks a month, who knows what time is. But at some point <laughs> in my life recently, I watched him at a webinar, uh, a talk, 
Um, his mother is translating the book. Yes, that's Spanish. such beautiful. I'm telling you, the day that book is released in Spanish, because his mom translated it, I I need to just read it that day. And I'm not I'm not putting anything on my calendar for you know a few hours. But in Children of the Land, Marcelo Hernandez Castillo is a poet, and this is um you you everything is very poetic, and he talks about um his family's relationship with. Um, immigration justice and what it takes to, you know, get your papers in this country and what happens when you get to travel back and what happens to your relationship with your family members when you're in this kind of mixed status family. And there's a lot uh, there about language. There's a lot there about identity. And it is for adults. I'm using it as my mentor text for my own writing. So that for me has been uh, a text set that has been carrying me a lot. And the one that I'm in right now, since Lucy Sherwood you're reading right now, I assigned um, some books with my students. So I'm rereading re them uh, with them. An Indigenous People's History of the United States for Young People by R Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz. It's adapted by um, Debbie Reese and G. Mendoza. And the other book that we're reading in book clubs with my, my teacher ed program is An African-American and Latinx History of the United States. So you see the theme here, right? That's by Paul Ortiz. And so we really are taking in histories that we were not taught in our schools and mm -hmm. um, using what we're learning to create our lessons for our students and using what we're learning to notice what kind of readers we are so that we can practice this like informational reading and notice what do we take notes on? What are our questions? What's confusing? What are we holding on to so that we can better prepare students for when they have to read articles and learn about U.S. history and get this new information, right? Thanks so much, Carla. Well, let's talk about what's what's next. So we're really excited uh, that Angle Munidad audiobook version is going to be released soon. And we're just really, I, I mean, I just, <laughs> I can't wait to see it. I can't wait to hear it. Um, so hopefully by the time that this episode airs, we might have it, um, but we will see. And also we have a couple of um, things coming up as well. Um, and Carla, do you want to tell us about it? So we have our Heinemann webinar series. So some of you might be joining us. Um, thanks to all of those who joined for our first series in 2020. We loved um, engaging with you. We saw you in the chat. We saw you. We saw you. And those of you who emailed us afterwards, I've been keeping in touch with some of you after the mm -hmm. webinar series. So mm -hmm. it's always nice to make those connections. So we have our webinar series and that starts in April. So some of you might be there in the spring if you're listening to this um, during that time. But also because you heard we love planning, we love teachers, we love centering our bilingual, multilingual Latinx students, and we love books, we are launching an En Comunidad book club. You can go to En Comunidad Collective dot com so you can register and that's en comunidad just like the title of the book with one m because it's in spanish en comunidad collective.com and um we're excited for those of you who are able to join us we'll just talk books and teaching yay thank you and thanks so much to heineman for having us uh, here today and creating this space for us to have this conversation we look forward to to hearing from you all soon Connect with us on Twitter. I'm at DRA underscore Luz Jadira. And Carla? On Twitter, I'm at Profesora. That's P-R-O-F-E-S-O-R-A. Espana. E-S-P-A-N-A. -A. So no ñ, just the Espana. Profesora Espana on Twitter. And 
on Instagram. We're also on some. I know teachers. You teachers love Instagram too. Yes. So Luz, tell them because because you're my Instagram person. You love Instagram. Yeah. Too. <laughs> <laughs> so yes, we all also have an IG uh, account, of course, and it is En Comunidad Collective. My thanks to Carla and Luz for their time today. Their book is available from Heinemann.com. You can learn more about their work and read a transcript of this episode at blog.heinemann.com. Learn more about the En Comunidad Collective at encomunidadcollective.com. The Heinemann Podcast is a production of Heinemann Publishing. It is produced and edited by Steph George. Sound mixing by Steph George. Our creative producer is Lauren Audette. And our executive producer is me, Brett Whitmarsh. To learn more about the Heinemann Podcast, visit blog.heinemann.com. Thanks for listening.